This morning we have um, the privilege of beginning a new sermon series, a new um, series of probably three sermons on the three chapters from the book of Nahum. Now, Nahum is probably, in some of your minds, not to accuse anyone of, any, of this, but it may seem rather obscure. We could say it's obscure um, because of its size. It's only three chapters. If you are turning to Nahum, you'll find it between Micah and Habakkuk, which that may not help you very much because those are also uh, minor prophets in the Old Testament. It's on page 782 in my Bible. I don't know how that lines up with yours. But the book of Nahum is somewhat unique in that um, it is one of a few books of the Bible that is addressed to another nation. As you will recall, um, many of the, pro- the prophets, typically their message was to God's people, either to the northern tribes or to the southern tribes of Judah. And often their message was one of, of God's judgment and calling God's people back from sin saying, come back to God. Um, in a sense, they were kind of like covenant prosecutors, saying, you have violated God's covenant. You are facing God's judgment. You need to come back. Nahum is a little different in that his message of judgment is directed towards Assyria, directed towards another nation. Now, if you are familiar with history, you know that Assyria was an was a extremely wicked nation. Um, if you remember from the book of Jonah, which is probably a more familiar um, prophet, his message was to Nineveh, which was the cap- became the capital of Assyria. His message was one of God's judgment, calling them to repentance, and they did repent. But here in the book of Nahum, we're about a hundred years later, and as is so often the case, repentance sometimes does not stick. People then stray. And this was certainly the case for the Assyrians. Um, various leaders in, the, in this intervening time had expanded the reign of Assyria through bloodshed and torture and plundering and exile. Um, we know if you remember the date of 722 BC, you know that that is the time when Assyria invaded and basically obliterated the northern ten tribes of Israel. They did that through killing them, obviously, and carrying many of them into exile, and then putting their own people and some of their own captives in that nation to intermarry with them and basically dilute and obliterate that people, um, the the northern tribes. Um, They continued to gain strength. This is just some background into the book, so you kind of know historically where it is. They invaded... um, the, the city of Thebes in Egypt, which was way down deep into Egypt in 664. So um, here when Nahum writes this prophecy, Assyria is at its apex of power. They, their kingdom extend, extended from deep into Egypt through Palestine, across the Fertile Crescent, all the way around to the Persian Gulf. They were really the superpower of their day. They were the vicious enemy of God's people and the imposing ruler of the known world. And this is the world into which Nahum speaks. His message is one of God's judgment. It was one of judgment upon this people. So that is just some background to help us understand a little about what this book is about. So at this time, let's pray and then we'll read this first chapter of the book of Nahum. Let us pray. 
Lord God, what a wonderful privilege it is to sit under the authority of your word. And even this Old Testament book that seems so unrelated to where we are today, yet it is your word. It is inspired and it is there for our instruction and to teach us of who you are. And Lord, your word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you make your word pierce into and applied to our hearts, Lord, we pray. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Nahum chapter 1, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. He will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now... I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold them upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless Pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Amen. And we praise God that He has spoken to us in His holy and inerrant word this morning. In the spring of 2016, the radical Muslim group ISIS published video footage of their forces destroying ancient walls and gates near Mosul, Iraq. These ruthless fighters seem to take great joy in displaying the, the terror that they, came, that they tried to impose. They sought to intimidate their foes by tearing down these structures that were thousands of years old. These landmarks and archaeological treasures that had stood for many, many years. 
The sad and bitter irony in this is that those walls and gates that were torn down near Mosul were the remains of the city of Nineveh. For you see, the city of Mosul is built around some of those remains. And while the city of Nineveh and the Assyrian civilization was destroyed in the 7th century, its gates were still being destroyed by another wicked power that was seeking to assert its authority at that time in that world. And just as God destroyed his enemies in the days of Assyria, so God will destroy ISIS and every enemy of his if they do not repent. So this first chapter of Nahum paints a vivid picture of the vengeance and wrath of God against his enemies. But it also gives us a picture of God's kindness as well. And we'll see three key themes in this first chapter. We'll see first the vengeance of a just God, the mercy of a long-suffering God, and the destruction of the enemies of God. It's very easy to see, and, and perhaps you experienced a little of what I experienced as I began to read this and study this. I'll have to confess, I had read this chapter several times, and the first time I read it aloud, it struck me in a different way. When I read verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. Those are strong words. Now, in our home, sometimes if there are strong words spoken, um, I, I won't name which one of my children, but one of them has just this one little word saying that he throws out there, and he'll just say, harsh. In other words, whoa, what you're saying is a little much. It's a little over the top. And that might be our reaction when we see this. And we might look at this and think, okay, pastor, you've told this, this civilization is long forgotten. It was from 2,700 years ago. This is an obscure book of only three chapters in the Old Testament. Why does it matter today? Well, I'm glad you ask. Because it matters because it's God's word and because it teaches us about the character and nature of God. It teaches us of his holiness. But... Nahum also gives us this beautiful verse in verse 7 that we want to spend a little time on about the mercy and kindness of God to his people. So this is important. We need God's word. We need the book of Nahum. We need to know that the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Nahum pulls no punches. He says that, the, that God's judgment is coming upon his enemies. And as God does so often in Scripture, before He acts or commands, He gives us a window into His character. What did He say before He gave the Ten Commandments? He said, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. He launched into the commandments after He told them of who He was and what He had done. And so it is here in Nahum. He says that this is who God is. These are some of the attributes of God. We love to talk about the love of God, and God is love. But God's love is not compromised by His justice and His wrath. And that is what Nahum is, is focusing on here. He begins with the jealousy of God. Now, when we hear the word jealousy, we typically think of that in negative terms, don't we? A, a, a jealous person is somebody that's covetous. A jealous person is somebody that wants something for themselves that probably doesn't belong to them. A jealous person would say, you have something that I love and I want it and I hate you because you have it. 
But that's certainly not the jealousy that we're talking about here in relation to God. God is jealous because it is an outflow of His majesty and glory and holiness, and it's an outflow of His love for His covenant people. Back again to the Ten Commandments. God said when He was explaining the second commandment, He said, first of all, He said, You shall have no other gods before Me. And then He says, Because I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. He is saying, I will have no rivals. I alone am the one to be worshipped. It's an outflow of His love for His people. This jealousy is a fervent desire to protect a love relationship. And for those of you that are married, think about that. We all, as husbands and wives, should have a fervent desire to protect that holy union of matrimony. We should have a fervent desire that there is covenant faithfulness in that union. God demands utter and complete loyalty from those He has loved and redeemed. And as J.I. Packer adds, he says he will vindicate that claim by stern action against them if they betray his love by unfaithfulness. That is the concept of the jealousy of God. God is jealous for his own holiness. His jealous love for his own people leads him to rightly destroy any enemy of his people. And it leads him to lovingly restore his people after they are disciplined at the hand of God. Secondly, we see the character trait of his wrath. God's wrath is something that that we naturally recoil from, and we should, but we need to know about it. Three times in verse 2 is a variation of the word vengeance used. Twice we see God's wrath highlighted in just that one verse. If God's jealousy is his attitude towards rivals, then his wrath and vengeance is is the outworking of that. It's the actions that flow from that jealous love. God's wrath is his holy anger against sin. We have to understand that God is perfectly holy. And sin is an offense. Even the smallest sin is an offense against his holy nature. And the wrath of God is his reaction towards that violation of his nature. Vengeance is mine, he says. God reserves vengeance for himself. For himself. We should never seek to work vengeance. He is the sovereign creator of every one of us, and he has a right to demand our allegiance. In a very real sense, he owns you and me. And it's only right that there should be some action flowing out of the jealous love that he has. And his vengeance and wrath is an outworking of that jealousy. Yet, verse 3 tells us that he is slow to anger. Even though God has holy anger, and wrath is something that is a component of his holiness, yet he is slow to anger. He gives people many opportunities To repent. He did that for the Assyrians here in Nahum. He had done it when Jonah preached to them. And do you remember what Jonah said? His complaint against God was, You know what, Lord? I knew this would happen. You're a covenant faithful God, and I knew that if they repented, you'd forgive them. 
That's exactly what he said. And that's what happened in the city of Nineveh. There was widespread revival. God had shown his mercy to them. He is slow to anger and great in power. God had allowed the children of Israel to suffer for many years under the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. But then when the iniquity of the Amorites were full, God led them out with deliverance and brought judgment upon the Egyptians. God is slow to anger. We need to be reminded of that. O. Palmer Robertson says this this great quote concerning the wrath of God. As a master of wrath and one who reserves wrath for his enemies, God displays a calculated control in the dispensing of his vengeance. He never gives way to passions. He never exceeds propriety. He never compromises his ultimate goals because of a reactionary response to current provocations. His just judgment cannot be questioned and ultimately can bear the most critical scrutiny of any and all because they always, his judgments always remain subject to his calm perfections as God. Okay, that's a a mouthful, I'll I'll admit. But let, let me just break it down. His wrath, God's wrath is never excessive. His anger is never out of control. His anger is never beyond what is appropriate. Now, you and I might become angry at a situation in our home or in our workplace, and we have to, we, I hope that by God's Holy Spirit, we could look back and we could say, I, I, was, I was out of place. God never has to do that. His anger is always appropriate to the sin against His holy nature. He never has to apologize or say He was out of control. And His wrath and vengeance are always subject to His divine perfections, His calm and divine perfections. If God seems overly severe to us, and I want you to hear me here, if God seems overly severe in His wrath and in how He deals with sin, we need to have a fresh understanding of His holiness, of who He is, of His divine perfections, and of the heinousness of sin. This is not just an Old Testament concept. Certainly we see again and again the God of the Old Testament bringing judgment upon the enemies of God. When, when Joshua and the people went into the land of Canaan and, and brought conquest, they were told to destroy, to utterly destroy, you know, place them under the ban and destroy the, the people, the residents of Canaan. That was God's judgment upon His enemies. But this is not just an Old Testament concept. Um, Paul tells us in Romans 1 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God's perfection and His holiness does not change. God does not change. And the holy God that brought judgment upon the Assyrians and destroyed Nineveh and destroyed that wicked civilization is the same God we serve today. And there should be a comfort in that, knowing that God does not change knowing that he's in control, and knowing that God will ultimately save the righteous. And we'll get to that in a minute. We see God's actions as judge. Nahum is, is very vivid in his descriptions of these things. He is great in, God is great in power, he says. And he, he talks about God's ways being in the whirlwind, in the storm. Even storms that seem to come out of nowhere come from the hand of God. 
God is ordering them in control over them all. His actions are an outflow of His character and His divine decrees. He rebukes the sea. He dries up the rivers. Nineveh was a city that, that had a natural barrier around it. And there's some irony in this, but in that God even God destroyed them. And they found those defenses woefully inadequate when God the Almighty brought judgment upon them. And while the contemplations of, of God's character and His actions really should strike fear in our hearts as we think about how great God is and His anger towards sin, Nahum makes it even more personal. And we, he calls us in verse 6 to think about ourselves. He says, "...who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire." And the rocks are broken in pieces by him. Who can stand before the Lord with any shred of hope apart from hope in another? No one. None of us can. Nahum reminds us that God's wrath flows like fire. It smashes the rocks. You think of a consuming fire that leaves only destruction in its wake. Rocks that are smashed can never be restored And that is the kind of judgment that Nahum is wanting to portray and show that God will bring upon his enemies. The psalmist cried out in Psalm 130, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who shall stand? Again, none of us can stand before God with any hope in ourselves. Certainly, the Assyrians could not stand before God with their arrogant wickedness. Not northern Israel, who had been carried into exile and virtually obliterated for their sin. Even southern Israel, Judah, had been habitually disobedient and and prone to idolatry. None of these nations, neither can you or I. And so here Nahum has, has led us to a point of despair in a sense, showing us the awesome power and wrath of God. But then he gives us hope in the mercy of a long-suffering God. Verse 7, shines like a bright beacon on a dark night. God's righteous wrath is rightly coming upon the sins of Assyria, but the Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. Now there's a sense where God's goodness is is universal. And we see that. Scripture tells us it rains upon the just and the unjust. There's, There's a way in which... Every person upon the earth enjoys God's goodness. Even the Assyrians enjoyed God's goodness. But there's a special goodness, even a tenderness, which God shows to His own. He is, Jesus said that, I am the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd that lays down His life for the sheep. He cares for His sheep. God in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, said that He was the shepherd of Israel. God delights in showing His mercy and goodness to His people. He provides a refuge for them. And He knows those that take refuge in Him. This word know in Scripture implies intimacy and familiarity. And that is the the idea that is conveyed. God knows and loves and cares for those that come to Him for refuge. We must remember that God's wrath and goodness are not opposites. They are not opposed to each other. 
His goodness does not negate His wrath, and His wrath does not negate His goodness. Both of these attributes flow out of His divine perfections as God. His holy character, and they, they reside harmoniously in His righteous being. God is infinitely good. He is the definition of goodness, and any goodness we see in creation flows out of His goodness as God. In, we may seem this as counterintuitive, but His righteousness is, or His goodness is upheld and proven by His wrath. God's goodness is shown in His avenging His wrath upon His enemies. For God to be consistent with His nature of perfect holiness, He cannot tolerate sin. Because He is a righteous judge, He must punish sin. Imagine with me the worst criminal that you could think of. Maybe someone who's taken another's life or, or a, a terrible dictator like Hitler who had, who had brought havoc and, and murder to millions. And that person, that criminal was found guilty and stood before a judge. And if that judge were to look at that person and say, you know, I'm feeling kind today. I don't, I don't think I'm going to be too hard on you. I'm going to let you off today. And I'm just going to let your time served count for you, and I'm going to give you probation, and you're free to go. We would, we would be shocked. We would say, that is a wicked, unrighteous judge, and we would be right. God, the judge of the universe, has a responsibility to judge sin. God's goodness, His holiness, His jealousy, His love for His people are all demonstrated by His righteous indignation against His enemies. God would not be good if He did not punish sin. And that's why, really, the rest of this chapter is good news for God's people. Even though it, it lays out in very vivid, even shocking language of God's judgment upon the Assyrians, it's good news for God's people. Because He is preserving them. He is doing away with their enemies. He reminds them of His mercy in verse 12. He says, they will be cut down and pass away. He says, though I have afflicted you, he's speaking here to Judah, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you, and I will burst your bonds apart. In other words, relief is coming to God's people. They had been under the thumb of Assyria, and God was going to bring them from that. It says in verse 8, he talks about darkness. He says that he would pursue his enemies into darkness. Darkness in Scripture has this idea of terror and dread and danger, distress. And really what he's saying is, is to Assyria, the fear that you brought upon people, I will bring upon you. There will be a complete end. Historians say that 300 years after the Medes and Babylonians overran Nineveh in 612 B.C., that hardly a trace of the city could be found, even though they've, they've dug it up and discovered walls that I mentioned earlier. But God brought a complete destruction upon His enemies here. Verse 10 is a picture of confusion, confusion and consuming fire. It says in verse 10, 
For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. You think of a consuming fire, consuming the stubble that's left after the harvest of the grain. That if, if farmers are not careful, when they burn that off, it can get away from them. It can be devastating in, in the way it is spread. God's wrath will come upon His enemies in a similar way with a consuming fire. He talks about those that plot against the Lord. This is likely talking about the leaders of Assyria, but it also applies to any enemy of God. Those who plot against Him will be brought to confusion and a consuming fire. But not only is His judgment coming, God reminds the, His people and the Assyrians that it, even in their hour of great might and strength, God is still coming to destroy them. Assyria, as we said, was likely near the top of its game, the top of its power. But it matters not how things look on the, ins- on the outside. If God says He's going to cut you down, He's going to cut you down. And that's the message He brings to Assyria. It doesn't matter how strong they look or how strong they felt. They, you might feel invincible if you are God's enemy, but... God's judgment is coming upon His enemies. Not only, He says, and and this language is so strong, He says not only is He going to destroy them personally, He's going to make their name forgotten. It's probably these names of, of the leaders of Assyria are very unfamiliar to you. I know they were to me. I don't hear anybody naming their children Sennacherib or Ashurbanipal. Their, their names are virtually forgotten from history. And he says, God says he's not only going to kill and destroy the Assyrians, he's going to dig their grave and bury them. That's harsh. That is strong words. But we need to realize, saints of God, that God is glorified in the destruction of his enemies and in the preservation of his people. Verse 15, the final verse here, shifts gears again. And it addresses Judah. It reminds them of that good news that we've been talking about. That God is bringing peace to them through the destruction of their enemies. He says, keep your feast, O Judah. Likely, if they were under oppression, their feast had not been celebrated. So he's either saying, keep them or reinstate them. Celebrate. Go back to your normal lives. Because God is going to bring vindication and justice against your enemies. The wicked, worthless oppressors of God's people will be ultimately cut off. But I want to ask you, as we close here, how do we reconcile God's judgment and His mercy? God is completely just and righteous. He will by no means clear the guilty. Verse 3 echoes a text from um, Exodus where God said, Also, that he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third generation, he told Moses. God is good and righteous, but God is a judge and he is avenging. How can he have mercy on any of us? How do any of us have any hope? We know that we're sinful because God's word tells us we're sinful and because our hearts Tell us we're sinful as well. God's wrath is always poured out 
upon sin. And the only way that there can be mercy for any of us, the only way that there's a refuge in a holy God is because of Jesus. Jesus Christ took the wrath of God for our sins. Jesus Christ drank the whole cup of the wrath of God against sin. When we say that Jesus bore the penalty of our sins, we're saying that that the entire sentence of our sins fell upon Christ. All of that penalty for all of His children was entirely placed upon Jesus. Jesus paid it all. How can we face a holy and a righteous judge when we know we're guilty? A God who says He cannot forgive, He cannot let sin go, He cannot look the other way. It's only because of Christ. It's only as we trust in His accomplished work. Only because of what Jesus has done can we find a refuge in a holy God. Fleeing to that refuge in Jesus Christ allows us to be united with Christ. And His righteousness is imputed to us. In other words, it's credited to our account. It becomes our own. Nahum here in this first chapter has led us to an enormous cavern of God's wrath and justice upon His enemies. But He also shows us the ocean depth of His mercy, of God's mercy in Jesus Christ. Because of what Jesus has done, we have that place of refuge. So as we think about this, let us... Let us be in awe of the great God, the holy God who brings judgment upon His enemies. But let us also see Jesus Christ, the one to whom we can flee for refuge. Romans 11.22 gives us a sober warning to the people of God. Paul says there, Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen... But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. There is kindness from God through Jesus Christ. And that's what I offer to you this morning. Come to Christ, receive Him, confess your sins, and believe in Jesus. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for the way that it speaks today to Your people. Remind us of your greatness, of your holiness, of your jealousy, and even of your wrath, O God, as we reflect upon your nature and your character. And Lord, help us to see that there is refuge in Jesus Christ. And you know those that take refuge in him. So give us grace to do that. Lord, for those that are here this morning that might not know you, that have not cried out for mercy from Jesus Christ. We pray that they would do that and that today would be the day of their salvation, we ask. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.